0: Well, I had that. Uh, we, we've been having some slight technical difficulties this morning. Difficulties this morning, if you haven't noticed, but uh, hopefully you can get past that. Um, one of the things that um, one of the reasons I wanted that scripture read from Ezra, uh, from Nehemiah, is because it just shows the importance of of the word of God in the reforming process of, of God's people. Like through through the ages, there have been these times of of decay, spiritual decay and apostasy, where the people just slowly drifted away from God, and then God would be faithful to bring a prophet. Or a teacher like Ezra to say, wait a second, and they come back to the law, that is back to the Torah, back to the Bible, and say, this is what it says. And when God's people have a heart that's soft enough to listen, then, uh, then, a, re- then a reformation takes place, and there's a renewal, and there's a, a renewed excitement, and so forth. And that's happened through the generations and through the thousands of years. And one of those moments of, of reformation happened 500 years ago, and um, this coming week, October 31st, to be exact, uh, will mark the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, um, and we thought it'd be fitting for us as a church to stop and pause and to revisit and also celebrate um, something that is important. This church exists because of the Reformation. We stand in its stream. And so um, what I wanted to do was was uh, revisit the content of the Reformation rather than just the personalities of the um, the Reformation. You're going to hear the name Martin Luther. You've probably heard it before, but there are many others who took part in this Reformation 500 years ago. Um, but I wanted to get at the heart of it, like in particular, some Latin phrases that you've probably heard before, and we're not going to use the Latin phrases because we want to seem smart. It's just something that has glued people together. We're going to go through four of the solas, sola, like solo, meaning alone. Um, the other words in Latin you'll are pretty self-evident, so you're not going to need any explanation. But I wanted to go through four of them because they convey and they, they they kind of distill down the heart of Christianity and the heart of what the Reformers gave to us. Before I get to those, we're going to go through four. There's more than four, but we only have time for four. Um, I wanted to make a couple of prefatory comments because, inevitably, Every time I've ever talked about Martin Luther or talked about the Reformation in the last 20 years, I've almost always offended somebody. Um, Either somebody from our church family has invited a a mother or father or friend who's Catholic, and um, they find themselves offended by some of the things that I've said regarding Roman Catholicism. Um, And for others of you, 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 uh, I know that there are people here who come to Parkway, you worship with Parkway, and yet you are... um, proud of or you uh have some sense of identity with your roman catholicism that is it's something that's precious to you it's part of your family um, part of your tradition and others are just maybe roman catholic sympathizers which is great Um, my aim this morning is not to uh, create unnecessary offense i just want to share that so let me try and disarm it by saying if there's such thing as disarming um say a couple things one When we're talking about Roman Catholicism of the 15th and 16th century, I'm talking about history. And it's not intended to be like a personal attack towards a group of people. I have many um, Catholic friends who are dear friends that I love and respect. we're talking about history. And you can't talk about the Reformation without talking the history in which it's found. It's it'd be like trying to talk about the American Revolutionary War without talking about King George or talking about the British. Like, can you imagine trying to explain? So, what's this whole Tea Party thing? Why did they throw the tea in the bay? Well, this unmentionable name of a nation decided they were going to tax us. And it's like you realize you have to talk about certain things to talk about certain things, or to try and talk about the Civil War without mentioning mentioning um, Abraham Lincoln or the Confederacy. It's just like, it's just it's part of history. Um, that's, and that's it. It's just, um, it's just historical. It's not meant to be personal. And if I could say one other thing, and that is that all of the traditions of Christianity um, have been subject to their own periods of corruption, right? Uh, Roman Catholicism is is not alone. I mean, in the 16th century, the Lutherans were were guilty of not only persecuting but executing Anabaptists. And in the 17th century... Some American Congregationalists hunted down and killed 19 so-called witches. Um, In the 19th century, the Southern Baptists ended up on the wrong side of the slavery issue. Um, Early 20th century, the uh, Russian Orthodox Church way overcompromised the communism of Russia. And in the 21st century, dare I say that the Evangelical Church is in serious danger of compromising to the sexual revolution. So what I'm saying is there's a lot of corruption to go around, all right? So this doesn't come from a position of superiority. But there are some substantive differences that I think, if taken to heart, if understood, makes all the world of difference in your relationship with Jesus, which brings us to these, this, this reformation. Just a word on what started it. Uh, most of you know the story, but there was this brilliant young Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther, not to be confused with Martin Luther King, although Martin Luther King's father, who was a pastor, was so inspired by the German Martin Luther that he named his son after him. It gives you a sense of his his uh, inspiring life. Um, he served as a priest, priest in the Catholic Church, as I said, a monk. He wasn't married and a scholar, and he... Um, saw what was going on at his time, and he realized there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's an exploitation going on. And so he, in, um, in a way of protest, of, of saying, listen, this isn't right, and he wasn't trying to um, create a different church. He was tr- trying to reform the church that he loved, which was the Roman Catholic Church. He, he nailed these, what they call the 95 Theses to the Door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. And these 95 theses had to do with his objection to the sale of what they call indulgences. A sale of indulgences, for those who may not know what that is, um, this is an oversimplification, but it's the belief that you can pay for forgiveness. That is, the church was raising money, parts of which was to build uh, that amazing um, architectural wonder called uh, St. Peter's Basilica needed money, and so um, if you would give, to the church, then it would alleviate and perhaps deliver um, a, a loved one from purgatory. It's a, a rather brilliant capital campaign strategy, if you think about it. Um, that if you give, then good things are going to happen to your relatives. You could actually also put away um, some savings for your own soul, so to speak, kind of a spiritual 401k, in which if you gave, then if you committed some venial sins prior to death and they weren't absolved, well, then that could go to your deliverance. And I think most of us would say that's, that's exploitive. And I don't think that Martin Luther just saw it as an exploitation of the poor. But deeper down, you, you realize that, oh, so what, it, are you saying that forgiveness can be bought? That there's a way of gaining forgiveness that bypasses the cross? And that was a problem for him. And it wasn't just a problem for him. Modern Catholics, um, if, if you happen to be a a Catholic person or someone who wants to know more about what really happened, I'd encourage you to pick up a book called The Catholic Church, A Short History by Hans Kung. Um, he is still a Catholic priest, Catholic scholar, Catholic theologian, who is sympathetic to Luther because he saw that they had, things became way overgrown and uh, distorted, and Luther was simply trying to get back to the simplicity of the gospel and the simplicity of the early church. So there's a lot of current Catholic people would say, yes, that, there, there, there was a problem here, okay? It wasn't just Martin Luther. Well, that's what started it, was, was that, and that's, that happened, the nailing of those 95 theses to the door on October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago this week. But that isn't where it ended, you know anything about your history, you know that the Reformation took place in the wind of the Renaissance, where there was this uh, desire, this renewed love for the classic literature of the Greeks, and a desire to learn the language of Greek and Hebrew, which included, for the Christians, a desire to study the Bible in its original languages. And as a result of this renewed interest in studying the Bible in its original languages, young scholars like Martin Luther started to realize, okay, well, here's my Bible— and what I'm seeing are different in the church. That is, over the years, layers and layers and layers of tradition had, had, had created something that at one level maybe wasn't supported by Scripture or contradicted Scripture. Which creates a real issue. An issue that boils down to one of authority. Like, So, the Bible says this. 66 books, Old Testament, New Testament says this, and yet I'm seeing this in the church. What do we do? And it brought up the most foundational, I think the most foundational question ever. Where does authority lie? Where does it lie? And the, and the, and the reformers, that, 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 is, that is such the question. What wields supreme authority in the church? Tradition? Tradition? The writings of the early church fathers, its creeds, the words of Pope Gregory the Great, Pope Leo the Great, our current Pope, R.C. Sproul, John Piper, Wayne Grudem, where does ultimate authority lie? And for the reformers, they came down to this, they came down to this the first of the solas and in many respects the bedrock one because if you get this one right then the rest follow that is sola scriptura that is they believed with scriptural conviction oh by the way these are two of the theses i forgot to put them there but this is so you can kind of read martin luther for yourself and don't let me forget where i was with regards to sola scriptura But, you know, they, speaking of the church in general and preachers that were sent out by the Vatican, they preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. He's just simply pointing out that this isn't in the Bible, this is human doctrine, and this is number 76. We say, on the contrary, that papal indulgences cannot remove the very least of venial sins as far as the guilt is concerned. So, you can tell he's just saying this this isn't right. So, back to sola scriptura. Um, What is the ultimate authority... In the church and as I said they said it's the scripture the scripture alone is our highest authority now I want you to know what that doesn't say it doesn't say that the scripture is our only authority God has other placed other things and other authorities in our lives law enforcement and judges and political figures and and so forth it's it's, it's not our only authority but it is the highest authority nor is it saying that the scripture is the only source of truth Science is a, a source of knowledge. Literature is a source of wisdom. But what it is saying is that Scripture is the highest of all authorities by which all others must be evaluated as true or false. The fact that it's sola scriptura, sola, alone, it means that the Scripture stands alone and that precludes church tradition. In other words, the tradition that has grown up around the Bible itself is not authoritative as the Bible. The Bible itself um, reigns supreme over all church authors, over all church fathers, over all church creeds, over all church leaders, be they a bishop, a pope, or a cardinal. That was their belief. The Bible stands and reigns supreme over all. Hopefully that's, that's clear. It's the, it's, the, it's the one thing we look to, and by the way, this is every bit as important today as it was back then. The question of where does ultimate authority lie? It's something that each of us has to answer for ourselves. Now, where would you get this in Scripture? And I think it's everywhere, but it seems that, well, it doesn't seem. Jesus confronted tradition as well in his day, 2,000 years ago. Right? Um, the Jewish people through the generations had acquired this Uh, rabbinic tradition that went beyond the scripture that jesus ran into that not only did it not support the scripture but at times contradicted the scripture and it's clear from how he addresses it that there's there's the authority lies with the scripture not in the traditions that grow up around it right and even to this day you go to israel you realize there is a whole lot of tradition like so what does it mean to keep the sabbath well the Bible just says keep the Sabbath. We're not supposed to work, but what exactly does that look like? And so through the accumulation of tradition, they decide exactly what that's like. So, and this is true. So you go to Israel, and you're, you're in Jerusalem on the Sabbath, and you walk into an elevator. There's an elevator in which all the lights are, are glowing. It's like Elf, you know, when he just went like this, and every one of them's lit, which means you're going to stop at every floor. They do that on purpose on the Sabbath because they don't want to touch the buttons. This is true. So you walk into the elevator. This is the tradition. And you go up to the second floor. Ding. Then the door closes and you go up to the third floor. It opens. So nobody has to do the work of pushing the buttons. Now, if you have to go to the bathroom, that's a really bad thing. It's going to take you like 30 minutes to get to the top floor. That is a tradition. It's nowhere stated in Scripture that you need to not push the elevator. But that's the kind of stuff that happens. And uh, Jesus ran into some of this stuff, and, and, and this, is, this is what he said. He says, um, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God. And here he's referring to his Bible, the, the Torah, in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say... If a man tells his father or his mother whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God. This is a way of cheating the parents out of help and not honoring the parents. Um, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus make him void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. It's like you're actually contradicting what God says through your traditions. Now, it should be clear that he's saying, listen, the words of God are primary, and all traditions need to be evaluated in light of them. And if the traditions are wrong, it's not the word that changes, it's the tradition that changes. That's, that's what Jesus is here communicating. Now, as I said, I, I'm spending a little bit more time on this one than the others, but it's foundational, especially for our time. Um... Where does authority lie for the church today? There is a massive chasm that is happening in in the evangelical church over the issue of gay marriage and and homosexuality. In the evangelical church, where do we go to determine what's right, what's wrong? Are we just going to stick our finger up and go, where are the winds of culture going to blow me? I just... Where does authority lie? It's every bit as important today as it was back then. Where do we go to to really think through issues of the environment, racism, um, politics, democracy, some of the things that we hold dear and yet remain unchallenged by what knows? So what does the scripture actually say? Some embedded beliefs We believe are self-evident, so we never challenge them. What does the scripture say? It is every bit as important now to know what what is of supreme authority. Hugely, hugely practical. What do you you believe, you know? Again, we're followers of Jesus, which means not only do we believe in Jesus, but we believe what Jesus believed. And he believed that the scripture was so powerful So infallible and so authoritative that he went on to say, and this is Matthew chapter 5, when he said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or nor a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Iota, it's like one of the smallest little Greek letters, which probably is equivalent of the yod in the Hebrew, which is the smallest letter, a little tiny letter, and a swish of a pen. It's like not one of those of God's word is going to fall to the ground without it being fulfilled. He was that confident in the scripture. That's Jesus' own words. So, listen, I, this is something that each one of you, each one of us, has to decide in our own minds. Going forward, where does supreme authority lie? And then, to search it out, what exactly then does the scripture say? Not what do we want it to say, but what did Paul mean when he wrote this? What did Jesus mean when he said this? What did Peter mean when he wrote this? And once we discern what they meant, then we know what it says. Sola Scriptura. It's the scripture alone that must evaluate all other things, the highest authority. The next three will be significantly shorter, are inextricably linked, and in some ways they all depend upon each other, because they have to do with our salvation. How are we saved by God? And they get at the very heart of salvation, the heart of the gospel. The second sola, sola gratia, or grace alone, basically that we are saved by God's unmerited and empowering grace alone. It's not just that God gives us favor without us meriting it or earning it or working for it, but that grace is powerful enough to raise us from the dead and seat us at the right hand and create a new identity in us and recreate us and form us and one day resurrect us from the dead. That's all a matter of, of God's grace. The capstone verse that most of us were taught when we were in wanna, if you were, um, Ephesians two eight, and you find it in Galatians and Romans, and and even in in the gospel, of course, the gospels of of uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But this is probably the cr- most crystal clear for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing; it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Like he's basically saying, we're saved by one thing, not another, by grace, and not by our working. In other words. Um, salvation is not something that, that we can manage, control or earn or work for it 's not something that can we can perform, and, and which is like it or not it 's kind of the default of not only where the, the secular person goes, but where the Christian person sometimes goes of just defaulting into that belief that somehow my, my state before God is tied to, to, to my performance. Um, and not to grace. I had a, and, and not just at the beginning of the Christian life, but in the enduring process of the Christian life. That we tend to be people who, I said this about guys in the announcement about about Tahoe, but we tend to be fix-it people. We gravitate towards mechanisms by which to access salvation, and and one of the things that Martin Luther in, it, it 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 um experienced in his life was the church had created a process and a mechanism by which a person could experience or maybe be assured that they're saved. A process of, of sacraments that are necessary for salvation that if you happen to sin, well then you could go through the process and then you get to the end of it and you're like I'm good again. But then you sin again, it's like oh, I got to go through the process again. And some of you guys who are Catholics know what I'm talking about, or were Catholics. Um, is it, and it leaves one not in a secure place. It actually leaves one in a very insecure place. Because here's this young Roman Catholic monk who's like, wait a second, I still don't know if I'm right before God after going through the process. Again, we tend to, to gravitate towards mechanisms and processes. And then he discovered it's by grace. And grace alone, with particular emphasis on justification, which means God declares the sinner righteous, not on the basis of their performance, but on the basis of what Christ has done. And that is a pure gift of grace. And his heart found rest. His heart found joy. And his heart found security. We think that a process of saving ourselves will bring us a sense of security, put us in control, but in fact, it does the opposite. It takes it away. I had a, and that's not just the beginning. It's in the middle of the Christian life. I had a conversation this last week. A, a brother called me up, not from our church, just a relationship I formed out in the community. He's like, someone really close to me died, and, and I'm just shook up, and I don't know what to do. Will you talk with me? So we met at Starbucks, and we uh, had a chat and he said, I just, I just feel lost. I don't know what's going on in my life. I just feel lost. And he went on to say, he says, you know, I can fix cars and I can fix tables. But I can't fix my lostness. And I said, well, what are you doing about it? And he goes, well, I've been reading my Bible and I've been praying. But I still feel lost. And the only thing I could give him was what I've learned from Scripture myself, which I have to put into practice almost every day. And that is, I said, you know, um, at the end of the day, what's going on in here is not something you can fix. It's the one place, the one domain that is, 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 is accessed and is, is, is changed by God and God alone. Like, God has given us some modicum of control over fixing fridges and flat tires, but this? I said, the first step, I think, is to recognize that you can't fix it. Right, and which is probably why the very first beatitude in Matthew was Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. They know they need grace. Not just at the beginning of the Christian life, but the whole of the Christian life is to be lived in humble dependence on, I actually, by myself, can't make this thing change. Not just in the beginning, but continue to be transformed. And it's so easy for the Christian to come to the Bible and come to prayer as, as tools of self help. And there's a problem with that self help. Rather than coming open handed, going, okay, I cannot help myself with these things, only you can. But I will practice them open handed, humble, dependent, knowing that unless I'm praying, teach me, O oh Lord. To follow your ways. You ever notice the Psalms keep saying David's holding the law in front of his his own face? He sees it, and he's not saying, I will teach me the way of the Lord. He's saying, Lord, teach me. Only you can take this and change this. Only you can take this and change this. It's we have to practice our Christianity empty-handed. And we stay that way. It's never supposed to change. But it's, again, so easy to gravitate towards control rather than rely upon sola gratia, by grace alone. You see how core it is, right? Okay, so if the scripture alone teaches that it's by grace alone, then how do we access it? And I've kind of already answered the question. What is it? How is it that we access? And, and, and the simple answer, of course, is faith. But faith is such a humble thing because it means we're absolutely dependent upon the work of another person. We're not in control. That's what faith means. We're not in control. We are depending on the action of another person that we cannot control. Namely, God. And there is sola fide. It is by faith alone, or excuse me, through faith alone that we are saved. And that we're supposed to live out our Christian lives and that we make progress. It's like, again, Galatians is found all throughout. But one of those places that pits the two together or uh, against each other is that yet we know that a person is not justified, that's not made right, not acceptable by God, or to God by works of the law or the works of the Bible that is keeping commandments, but through faith in Jesus Christ so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. That's the only thing he says that puts one in right standing before God is his humble dependence upon God as the worker of salvation. Not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be made right. By, by that humble dependence. And again, this is so hard for the proud heart to, to accept. We want a piece of it. We, want, we don't want to leave control to another person. We don't want to humble ourselves and allow somebody else to do the work and trust that it's, it's, it's sufficient for us. Anybody have a hard time accepting the f- a free gift? Because it's humbling. I have a hard time allowing somebody else when I'm sick to clean my bathrooms. How much harder is it for us to accept the simple fact that God and God alone could clean up the mess of our sin, not us, and to trust him. Because it's, it's hard. It's hard to say, all right, God, what you're saying is just trust you. That's it. And he's saying, yeah. And you know what? When that genuine trust emerges from the heart to believe that you did do this for me in my undeserving and undesirable state, it actually moves one to work hard from a different motive. I mean, you look at Martin Luther, you know, the, the level of work that he did after the discovery of grace and faith and what God had done for him in Christ Jesus, I mean, he translated the entire Bible into the common tongue of his German people so they could read it for themselves because up to that point, a priest would read or preach in Latin, which was the, the language of the elite and so they couldn't actually hear the scripture from, in the words that they understood. I mean, volumes and volumes. William Tyndale, you know, the reformer of, the, of, of Britain, he's like, he translated the entire Bible into English and paid for it with his life. That's the kind of passion that arises from true faith. That's the kind of self-sacrifice that arises from true faith. Faith is not a passive Um, inactive kind of thing. True faith in the fact that God is powerfully at work in the heart of the believer and he has done all of this actually launches one forward um, into fruitfulness of life. Sola fide. Semper fidelis. Same thing, faith. Always faithful. Which leads us to the last and, and in many respects Central one, because the object of faith, that is the center of it, the center of grace and God's unleashing it to us, is none other than in the person of Jesus Christ, which is Solus Christus. That is, Christ alone is the full and final revelation of God and our only means of salvation. The only means of salvation. There's a thousand texts that talk about this, the entire first half of Colossians and Ephesians and Romans, and the Gospel of John is full of it in a good way. (laughs) But Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 just kind of shows us that Christ is the full display of God's own character, that he is the agent of creation, and he's the only means by which Purification for our sins is made. When He says, Long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand, majesty, of, majesty on high, central in creation, central in revelation, and central in re- re- redemption. And the reformers would say, it's, it's actually our relationship with God is in Christ and Christ alone. And the thing is, is that, like I said, we, and it's not just individuals, it's institutions that tend to mechanize salvation, you know, uh, through a sacramental theology where you believe you have to go through certain processes by which to be forgiven or made right again. Inevitably, what that does is it focuses the attention on the sacraments and not the Savior. That we're focused on the processes, which Luther would say is like, there's only one mediator, and it's not the processes. And that mediator is Christ and Christ alone. That the only sacrifice that we need is the sacrifice that was given once for, once for all on the cross. We need no further sacrifices. So whatever this table is, it is not a re-sacrificing of Jesus. The only priest that the New Testament tells us that we need is our high priest whose name is Jesus, who was both offering priest and substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. That the only Savior we need is the one who earned perfect righteousness on our behalf and freely gave it to us who believe. That the only hope we need is the one and the only one who can call us to rise from the dead and lead us into a renewed creation in Christ and Christ alone. The performers would say, although Luther probably smudged on this a bit, you are not we were never saved by our baptism though it's commanded we are not saved by this table though it's commanded we are saved directly by Christ and Christ alone and do you realize what that does it's like i religion has a way of like growing up around a house like like gnarled branches and and trees and um, thorn bushes, and pretty soon you can't even see the house. And you're trying to get to the door because you want to be with the person inside the house. And these solace, Scripture is ultimate authority and teaches that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone it has a way of just getting rid of all of that entanglement and it allows us in the door to have a genuine firsthand relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what it's about. And that's some of what was given to us 500 years ago. So we're taking communion this morning. And I just want to remind you, this does not save you. It points you to the only one who did save you. And that is Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. So if I could encourage you as as you come, maybe there's a reformation needed in your life. There certainly is a reformation needed in the church. It should be a constant question. Lord, how, how is it that my life is out of line with, with what you've declared, what you've revealed with the gospel? And to confess it, to acknowledge, Lord, I, I, my heart, I need you to change me, please. And as you're holding the bread and the cup, be reminded that, man, the salvation that we have is, is, is free to us, but it's offered to us in Christ, in Christ alone. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, and if I could have those who are serving communion come up, um, there is, for those who are new, we have both gluten and gluten-free. You just need to ask for it. And, um, and if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is a reminder of the heart of of the gospel. That is the death and resurrection of Jesus. So let's pray and then come forward. Father, I thank you for your goodness, kindness. I just pray that... If there are minds here that are wrestling with what was just said and wondering if it's true, I just pray that, that it wouldn't stop here. I pray that they would um, do their own study and research and, and come to the conclusions on their, their own that your Bible is supremely authoritative and in it to find the liberation and the joy of knowing that salvation is by grace alone through Christ. Minister to us now, Lord, as we partake of these elements in Christ's name. Amen.